Hello, I'm Chris Galvin, and I'm pleased to introduce the 10th episode in ICOCA's podcast series, Future Security Trends, Implications for Human Rights. I'm going to be in conversation today with Candace Rondeau, Professor of Practice at the School of Politics and Global Studies at Arizona State University, and a Senior Fellow with the Center on the Future of War, which is a joint initiative of ASU and New America. The focus of our conversation is Understanding Mercenaries, War, Wagner, and Why We Should Care. So Candace, first, I'd like you to unpack for us the definition of mercenaries. Many people use the terms mercenaries, private military contractors, and private security companies interchangeably. But the International Code of Conduct defines security services as guarding and protection of persons and objects, such as convoys, facilities, designated sites, property, or other places, whether armed or unarmed or any other activity for which the personnel of companies are required to carry or operate a weapon in the performance of their duties. So for ICOCA, there's an important distinction between private military companies who can be engaged in offensive action and private security companies who are in the protection business. How useful is it to distinguish between private military and private security companies and where does the mercenary label fit in? Well, it's a good question that is probably best unpacked by first defining what is permissible and what is not permissible, right, under the laws of war. It is permissible for, as you say, private security forces to protect infrastructure, to provide security forces, for instance, for uh, very important people, VIPs, um, to provide background intelligence for uh, again, for security purposes in the context of uh, operations uh, abroad. So those things are permissible. And we sort of tend to think of two different types of organizations that fit within that permissible category. So um, private military contractors are mostly in a defensive posture, uh, pro protecting buildings, protecting construction projects, infrastructure, and so forth. Private military security contractors are a little bit more forward in their operations, uh, potentially offensive in their operations, uh, depending on the circumstances. So they might work in much more hostile situations, much more chaotic situations, where there are a number of armed combatants on the ground who change the security landscape. Mercenaries kind of fit into this kind of latter category in so much as they tend to be hired for offensive operations in which territory is being uh, acquired essentially so um, moving in on territory that is not already under control so operationally they share um, the same sort of footprint or a similar footprint to private military security contractors operationally under international law, under the, the Geneva Protocols, a mercenary is defined as a person who is an armed combatant who fights uh, for profit, essentially, for personal financial gain. Unfortunately, you know, the, that definition is a, is a bit old, um, dating back to the uh, 1960s, 1970s, and it hasn't really, it doesn't really reflect the changing character of war today. Today, uh, most mercenaries are not independently um, sort of jumping into the middle of wars by themselves uh, singularly like some sort of uh, Rambo-style uh, superhero. Most 
mercenaries, in fact, um, work for small contracting contingents, many of whom uh, contract with large parties that either are working for multinationals um, or, or are multinationals, or um, in many cases, increasingly, they are deployed by state-run multinational co companies, primarily in the energy sector. So in the case of Russia, for instance, uh, what we know about the so-called Wagner Group is you know, the primary contracting party there really is the Russian state. Um, the intermediary uh, contractor is oftentimes uh, you know, Gazprom, Stroytransgaz, um, state-run enterprises that deploy their own forces into places like Libya or the CAR uh, or, or Mozambique. Um, so in effect, on paper, Russian mercenaries, Russian uh, Wagner Group fighters may look like mercenaries, but in reality, they are a PMSC contingent that should technically fall under uh, the oversight of, of inter the, the international law, uh, international humanitarian law. So, you know, there's a little bit of gray zone there, but that, that gray zone piece is in, an intentional obfuscation about the responsibilities of the armed combatant parties. And just on the, the, the who's doing the hiring here, so, you know, you mentioned multinationals, uh, 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 one of the kind of clients of these private military contractors. I mean, are we talking about, you know, big brand named companies that we all know? Well, they're certainly well known in the world of energy. Uh, you know, Gazprom is probably one of the largest uh, gas producers in the world, uh, might be, you know, rated second, third, somewhere in there, uh, in terms of its, its reach and in terms of its production volume and its distribution uh, networks, etc. It's a very, very large company, but it is state-owned uh, and it is state-managed. It is con considered under Russian law um, a strategic enterprise. So everything that it does, you know, outside the borders of Russia is considered a strategic uh, operation. And that is where the Wagner Group comes in. Um, sort of how it works is the Ministry of Defense is technically under this kind of strategic enterprise or strategic sector is tasked with supporting the protection of that, that strategic resource. So when Gazprom employs um, out to, let's say, Syria, it really is technically because it's also occurring in a theater of war, there are military technical agreements in place, but also because gas and oil production is considered a strategic resource, the Ministry of Defense is kind of the main contracting party that orchestrates all of the protective services right, um, including the, you know, PMSC contingents that are deployed uh, under the so-called umbrella of the Wagner Group. So um, that's kind of how it works. And, and also, of course, another big player here is Stroytransgaz, uh, which is uh, one of the largest oil and gas engineering firms in the world. Um, they have operations everywhere, um, but they're very big in some of the kind of former Soviet client states uh, in the Middle East, so Syria, Algeria, uh, and, and Libya are sort of three key points uh, of entry for Stroytransgaz. And again, um, there you see kind of co-deployment, right, because you can't have oil and gas production uh, from Gazprom without the construction to go with it from Stroytransgaz. 
Um, and so when we talk about the Wagner group, what we're really talking about are the contingents and, and detachments that are employed by those state-run enterprises and the administrative process is kind of run primarily by the Ministry of Defense um, through another bunch of subcontracting bodies. So, I mean, there are large Western multinationals, including oil and gas companies, name brands that we know here, who, and they're, you know, somewhat transparent about the fact that they contract private security companies. Why do we not know? Why is there this opacity around the, the Wagner Group? That's a good question. The, there are a couple of different reasons. Um, one, uh, the Russian state is still in a process of transitioning from a predominantly state-run economy. Today, you know, it's, it's safe to kind of characterize the Russian economy as semi-privatized especially in the realm of the Russia's military industrial complex. So that is, you know, those companies um, that make munitions and deploy helicopters and aircraft uh, to places like Syria and Libya, you know, those are primarily under the control of the Russian state. And Russia has not succeeded, unfortunately, in diversifying its economy away from a model where the state owns the vast majority of capital when it comes to energy production uh, and military industrial production. And that's problematic for a couple of different reasons, but not least of which is when um, the Arab Spring began back in 2010, you know, at first, starting with Egypt and Tunisia, yes, it caused a quake um, for the Russian government, but not nearly as serious as when the war in Libya uh, began in 2011, and then, of course, very shortly after Syria. And those two locations are extremely important for Russian uh, oil and gas production, as well as the deployment of, of weapons. And so they're big markets, basically, um, is the best way to describe them. And so one reason why it became challenging for Russia to deal with that situation was because of the UN embargoes that were later imposed on the Assad regime and then the Gaddafi regime in 2011-2012. And Russia made a very open and very public decision to continue uh, with the execution of existing contracts from Rostec, the primary uh, weapons provider uh, out of Russia, uh, as well as other contracts that were extant uh, in the energy sector. Uh, and, th and it was declared very openly, but the problem was that open declaration didn't mitigate the challenge around the potential for interdiction of shipments of goods and services to these places, Syria and Libya, uh, that were under embargo. And so the, the Wagner fiction uh, was in some ways created to create plausible deniability for Russia, that it, in fact it was not uh, in breach of the embargo. Those were some other mysterious Russian-speaking people who were delivering large-scale platforms uh, to these war zones. So, I mean, you've mentioned various theaters, as it were, that the, the Wagner Group and Russian contractors are, are involved in, whether it's Syria, Libya. I know the Central African Republic is another. And, and one I'd like to turn to is Mozambique, specifically the conflict currently taking place up in the, in the Northeast in Capo Delgado. 
The Mozambique government apparently contracted the Wagner Group to assist with the security in the region, though my understanding is that they they left after suffering a number of casualties. Um, and a private South African military contractor took up the reins after Wagner pulled out, Dyke Advisory Group. Now, Amnesty International recently released a report alleging human rights atrocities committed by DAG. And while this, along with the atrocities committed by Islamic militants, has garnered a lot of media attention and the, you know, the, the terrible humanitarian crisis that's going on in Cabo Delgado right now, there's been much less attention on the impact, if any, of the various large multinationals in the extractive sector, who presumably contract security companies to gather operations in the region. So why aren't we hearing about how they might fit in into the mix there? Well, a couple of things are important to keep in mind. So Cabo Delgado, of course, is this extremely impoverished coastal region of Mozambique, uh, but it just so happens to be adjoining one of the largest natural gas fields uh, in, in that part of Africa. So uh, there's a lot of offshore activity um, in terms of exploitation that is expected to happen over the next decade or so, maybe even two decades. So it's an extremely important and lucrative uh, potential port gateway for energy trade. At the same time, uh, Mozambique is a place that historically, of course, has a lot of roots in a long ago war that many, many people will not remember that you know, went on from the 1960s, 1970s, uh, which essentially pitted the, then the Soviet Union against the United States in a proxy war, uh, and also Cuba, I should mention. Since then, um, things you know, had stabilized for a time in Mozambique, but as with many kind of post-Cold War legacies, the challenge of an overly centralized government in Mozambique still persisted. And what that has meant you know, on paper in practical terms is that some areas of the country are not well governed. Uh, and Cabo Delgado happens to be one of those areas. And because of these existing, pre-existing relationships with Moscow, um, the, the Mozambican government turned to Moscow for help when it began encountering challenges uh, with Islamists in, in that region. Now, I, I just will point out that, you know, we weren't talking about Islamists in that region uh, 20 years ago or even 10 years ago, and it's precisely because um, the discovery of oil and gas in the region has had probably a very significant effect on the political economy uh, and, and the escalation of conflict in the region. So um, there's kind of a synergistic relationship, right, between um, natural resource discovery in a, in a place and then the sudden kind of fight for resources when, when governments do not um, do well to distribute uh, goods and services. Uh, we know this you know, to be kind of just a truism uh, of the of origins of conflicts of, of today. It w but it just so happened that, of course, the, the capacity of, of the Mozambican government to deploy in that area uh, was constrained by two things. One, just sort of experience and, um, and the ability to kind of be mobile in, in a place like that is very difficult terrain. Uh, and, and then, of course, having a dependency, you know, from, again, from this prior legacy of needing weapons from Russia, right? Already, you know, there was already this pre-existing kind of line, supply chain line. Uh, instead of going to buy new fancy, expensive things from, say, a NATO provider, why not just go with what you already have and what your troops already understand how to deploy with? And so the, that first experiment with bringing in 
Russian primary private military security contractors was really about just servicing a, a supply chain need that was already in place and that frankly had had a lot of pressure on it because of course there was more fighting in the area. Um, of course, famously, I think it was in 2019 that there was a number of incidents involving Wagner troops facing off, off against uh, Islamists in the area. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I think several were actually beheaded uh, during one of the, the confrontations. And so I think Russia got a little gun shy and so did the Mozambican government and started shopping around for new potential providers and, and Dyke obviously was one of them. Uh, but now I understand that the Green Berets, the U.S. Um, uh, military advisors, have also come in to the region to provide support. Control of resources and, and resource extraction seems to be a, uh, a kind of a red thread in understanding the predominance of, of private military contractors. Um, are, are there any other kind of circumstances where, you know, we're seeing more use of, of mercenaries and private military contractors around the world, and, and not just from Russia, but, but other states? Well, I think one of the common conditions or common denominators for states that go shopping for private military forces, natural resources and, and, and extractive capacity is, is certainly a, a very key um, dynamic that catalyzes the, the search for uh, more secure uh, or more securitization of a given territory. However, I think one of the common patterns is also states with large amounts of debt. States that really have not been able to operate, where they collect internal revenues, where they don't have a lot of um, history of steady and stable foreign direct investment. Therefore, they find themselves in huge amounts of debt to the IMF and to other creditors. Um, those states tend to be more vulnerable and more uh, have a greater appetite for risk when it comes to uh, using private military security contractors in their territory. And, you know, oftentimes a big part of that pattern where you have large-scale debt is, you know, large-scale corruption in terms of um, government capture, uh, state capture of resources that really actually belong to the citizens themselves. So that's a very common pattern that we see, and and certainly those states, you know, in today's world, tend to be clients of, for instance, large-scale infrastructure projects uh, backed by China's Belt and Road Initiative. And on top of that, that that also that kind of very big, large-scale foreign direct investment from China to create roads, to create uh, transportation nodes, ports, et cetera, et cetera. That kind of large-scale investment um, is often paired with then additional exploration by, by Russian state enterprises. Um, it is not to say that they are the only operators in those, in those countries, in those settings, but simply to say that there is, again, there is kind of a synergy between what, what China does in terms of uh, making big inroads, in, especially in Africa, and then what Russia has an ambition to do with kind of uh, piggybacking on that investment. So look, I want to turn to what to do about regulating, if that is at all possible, these kinds of uh, organizations. I mean, the, the International Code of Conduct, we work with private security companies, as I mentioned at the beginning. You know, we're very much focused on above board companies who are in the business of securing 
concessions, uh, sites, whatever it may be, they're in the guarding business. Um, and there is transparency from their clients about the fact that they, they contract the, these kinds of organizations. But how do you regulate you know, a sector that is, is really uh, essentially kind of underground? Well, we have to look at the incentive structure. Um, and, and it's important to note that there is and has been for the last decade, you know, a very robust debate within the Russian state Duma about how and whether to uh, normalize and legalize the Russian private military security sector. And there is a whole contingent uh, out there that believes it is time for the Russian state to um, create a, a set of regulatory provisions that will allow them to operate in a more above board fashion, right? Um, an interesting kind of call for transparency. You know, parts of the Russian state, again, it has its own kind of factions uh, as, as with any other state, um, you know, see that that could be a threat to control over large parts of the military industrial complex. So there's kind of a, a tug of war between inside Russia, between, you know, wealthy elites on both sides that would like to see the private sector, security sector, uh, normalized and regulated a little bit more evenly and therefore creating more transparency in their outward operations. Um, but until you see a change in leadership, I think, at the very highest level in the Kremlin, that's probably not going to happen. There are ways, uh, I think, for uh, you know, the international community to really, one, begin a dialogue with you know, contingents inside of Russia that are looking to privatize, uh, to sorry, normalize um, the private security sector. And I think that dialogue needs to take place soon um, because it's clearly bubbling up now. Uh, you know, there are some serious challenges in the Central African Republic in particular that I think we're going to be hearing about. You know, there are allegations of all kinds of things like war crimes and the use of chemical weapons. Again, not substantiated yet, but if, if that does turn out to be true, um, that is certainly going to, you know, escalate the concern around Russia's use of private military security contractors in a big way. And so it's, I think it's incumbent on the international community right now, especially stakeholders like ICOCA um, and potentially even the ICRC, to really be in a much more aggressive posture in their dialogue with internal stakeholders inside Russia who are thinking more logically about the long-term implications of the way uh, the private military security contracting uh, industry is structured right now. That's that's a first step. And then the second step is, again, you know, there, there needs to be investigation into uh, the various areas where we know uh, Russian military contractors are deployed. Um, I think there needs to be much more robust investment in, in research um, so that we can understand whether or not they are in compliance with existing embargoes, uh, so that we can understand whether they're in compliance with international human humanitarian law, and, and where, in fact, pressure can be applied for more compliance with rules and norms. Finally, if you could say a few words, you've already mentioned China here, but, but looking forward, you know, five or 10 years, what are the different potential paths that, that we may go down? And where does China fit in with this? Is, is there a danger of it going down the, the kind of Russian route? Or is there, is there another path that, that we may take? It's a little bit hard to see. Um, what, what we do know is that, you know, the Belt and Road Initiative has catalyzed 
you know, a lot of investment in the private security sector. A uh, good example of this, of course, most famously, we've heard about Operation Opus, uh, which was this botched deployment of, of British and Australian and American mercenaries um, off the coast of Libya uh, that all went very badly. We know that that group is tied to Blackwater's uh, former CEO, Eric Prince. Uh, that is all public. That has been, you know, discussed and, and reported in uh, by the UN in its own reporting on that, that situation. Uh, and we also know that, you know, uh, CIDIC group, which is a very large-scale uh, China state enterprise, is the primary backer um, of, of that particular set of contingents that was deployed in that situation. Um, so I think what we're going to see is a continuing growth, meaning there's an appetite in China um, just for, for these services. There's going to be some creative solutions, and most of them are going to reside in trying to find middleman partners like the UAE um, as a kind of supporting hub, and then potentially working with small-scale Russian contingents, perhaps other uh, types of contingents that can operate. It's, it's all going to be very situation dependent and case dependent, but I certainly think we can anticipate growth. But I think most of what we'll see in this early period is China will be outsourcing that kind of work to others, non-Chinese non uh, nationals. Well, we are engaging ourselves with China. Uh, we have a number of Chinese private security companies who are members and certified members of the association. So we hope to to bring more into the fold as well. And, and it sounds like maybe we should be doing the same with Russia as well. But for, for today, Kenneth, I want to say thank you so much. Thank you.